Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, accountability coming in the Pentagon's new Zero Trust Plan. Happy birthday to one of government's most important tech laws and customer experience progress at the TSP. It's Tuesday, November 29th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. The number one CRM, Salesforce, Customer 360 for public sectors and the integrated platform for public services. It features relationship management, case management, and lots more. You can learn more at salesforce.com slash government. The Defense Department says it will hold organizations inside the department responsible for hitting the deadlines in its new zero trust strategy and roadmap. DOD officials released the public version of the strategy and roadmap last Tuesday. Gordon Bitko is senior vice president of the Information Technology Industry Council. He's former chief information officer at the FBI. Gordon, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I note that intentionally or unintentionally, uh, a letter that you sent to Shalonda Young, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, seems to lay the platform for what agencies are doing regarding zero trust. What's the intersection of these five points that you make in this letter and what agencies will have to do moving forward, like DOD, to establish zero trust regimes? Welcome. Francis, thanks for having me back. It's always great to talk to you. You are always insightful on a lot of these key issues here. The letter really does, uh, as you note, lay a a basic platform of things that industry and agencies need to work on together. There really needs to be this collaborative effort because cybersecurity is complicated. Zero trust is a complicated addition on top of that. It really intersects so many different parts of of the cyberspace continuum. Workforce has to be involved. Data has to be involved. Software development, software vulnerability, all those are pieces of a zero trust strategy. And really what we're trying to say in the letter to to Ms. Young is, let's try to get consistency here. Let's not have every agency do it for themselves. What's inconsistent now? Is it policies and procedures that are in place? Is it strategies that agencies are undertaking? What's the missing link right now in your view, Gordon? Unfortunately, Francis, it's a little bit of both. There, the, the OMB memo here, and it's understandable why they see a sense of urgency to put this out, but what they do is they leave it to individual agencies to implement components. What that means is every agency is gonna interpret this guidance a little bit differently, and is gonna have different requirements for every contractor that they work with. So that's that's a piece of it for sure, that's a, that's a concern. But then um, going back to your question, the, it, it doesn't dictate the specific strategies for agencies to do. And it's a federated government. Some of that's correct and makes sense. But what, again, it's going to potentially lead to is, is duplication. An example that we've laid out in the memo is there's FedRAMP requirements for cloud service providers to, to do things to ensure the integrity of their software or their code as it's developed. The memo doesn't say to agencies, should you use that guidance or should you require a separate attestation and allows agencies to figure that out for themselves? Inevitably, in my experience, Francis, unfortunately, what that means is every agency figures it out separately and differently. Um, So the flip side of that, though, I'm going to put you back at the FBI for a second, and you're the CIO there again for just a moment. Don't you want that autonomy? Don't you want some kind of a discretion to decide what will work right for your agency? Is that it? Or is it the matter of complete and total autonomy where everybody's doing it completely differently and that results maybe in in more 
I mean, I hate to use the word chaos, but that's what it sounds like in my mind when you have all these different organizations and the CFO Act agencies, especially going completely different directions. I think, Francis, it's the, the goal needs to be to find a balance. You absolutely need some degree of autonomy because agencies' risks are different. The types of data they have are different. Workforces are different across agencies. Some have much more skilled cyber workforce than others. But at the same time, we, we do run the risk, like you said, of, of uh, I won't go quite so far as to say chaos, but as, as you know, a fractured environment that makes it very difficult. All of the companies that ITI represents want to sell best-in-class products to government agencies. When it's challenging for them is when every agency asks them to do it differently. Instead of actually being able to really solve hard problems, have to spend time answering the, the compliance regime. And compliance is important, but it shouldn't be the end game. In your view, then, what's that right balance to strike between everybody going their own direction and a regimented um top-down approach that requires agencies to take specific steps? What I would really like to see in this case, Francis, is a focus on some standardization. The understanding that for some of the things that they're asking for, for example, attestations and the use of S-bombs, we aren't yet at a point today where there's a consensus across industry or between industry and government of what exactly is the right thing to do there. Let's invest in moving those processes forward quicker and faster and say, here is a standard. Companies can figure out how to comply with the standard. Agencies can figure out how to leverage the standard. That's what they do today. If you look at the cybersecurity controls that agencies have to comply with, they're voluminous, but agencies have the ability to apply risk management and decide what components of it make sense for them. But what they don't do, what they shouldn't do is come up with a completely new set of standards for themselves. So I think that that's really where we'd like to see things go. You mentioned SBOM, software build materials, are a hot topic right now. And you wrote in this memo, given the current level of immaturity, we believe SBOMs are not suitable contract requirements yet. What gets them there, Gordon? A, a few things, Francis. It's, it's, I think really goes back to what I said about following a standards, a standards making process. Embedded in that standards making process has got to be some understanding of a, a number of key sort of foundational issues for SBOMs and how they're used, what type of data are collected, and how it's shared in, in intelligent ways that people can use it. And, and we're just not there yet. There's a number of different proposals that have been floated out there. And that's the logical starting point. But rather than letting people pick and choose from those, again, we should invest in, in developing those standards. If that uh, concept is immature right now, when it reaches maturity, is that uh, a standard that makes sense to use in your view? I think SBOMs have an important role to play when we get to that point, Francis. I also, though, this isn't a we shouldn't use them comment, but just cautionary that they're not a silver bullet. There are people who I think after Log4j, for example, they heard after that uh, vulnerability exploit, they, they thought about that and said, well, agencies don't know if they even have Log4j in their, in their technology stack. Software bill of materials will solve that problem for them. Yes and no, right? It might help, but it doesn't really tell you unless it's done correctly and you've got the right trained workforce. Do you have the specific version that is vulnerable that could be exploited? And do you have it in a place where it's vulnerable in your infrastructure? Or do you have other things that you're doing to prevent the risk? And all that is is a maturity level that agencies need to get to when it comes to cybersecurity. What would you counsel somebody at an agency level or somebody at the CIO council level to do uh, to avoid that fractionalization? How should agencies collaborate or team up or whatever term you want to use to develop maybe three to five strategic paths to take 
or maybe it's as simple as outright like cribbing the DOD uh, strategy and roadmap and adapting it rather than starting completely from scratch. What, what in your view, makes the most sense for the practitioners at the agency level, Gordon? A couple things come to mind, Francis. One is what makes the most sense is, yes, to, to crib, to borrow best practices from other agencies that have done work, to figure out how they fit and, and where they don't fit, but don't start afresh for yourself. Not every agency has the resources that DOD or others have. I think the second piece of that is for a lot of those agencies that are starting from scratch, work, work with CISA. I know CISA is understaffed and undermanned at this point, but they do have the mandate to do these things. And for those agencies that are in the position that they need help, work with CISA and, and try to build out that framework. And then I think the third thing is there are, you mentioned the CIO Council, and I know Krista Russia is trying to convene the federal CISOs more regularly. I think there are opportunities for those folks to get together and actually work together and collaborate and to say, rather than allowing our individual acquisition efforts to do their own thing, we're, we, we should work together. And that's the last thing that I'll mention, Francis, that that is really important and that is not spelled out as clearly as it should be in the memo, but there is this key component of the acquisition workforce and agency CIOs and others have to be close partners with their acquisition leadership with their procurement executives. And so, so that's really uh, uh, the last thing. And I think the key takeaway is work with those folks to make them understand, yes, this is a requirement, but we shouldn't go on this journey ourselves. Gordon Bitco, great to talk to you as always. Thanks very much. Francis, thank you. You can find a link to Gordon's letter to OMB in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Cyber leaders from DOD, DHS, HHS, and lots of other agencies will be on hand for the Security Transformation Summit next Thursday at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can find a link to read more about the summit and register in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. A big anniversary is coming for one of the foundational documents in federal technology. The eGov Act turns 20 on December 17th. Mark Foreman's executive vice president at Dynamic Integrated Services. He's former eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. Now, Mark, the uh, White House website archive says that you joined April 16th, 2003 as eGov administrator. You'd been there already. What was that transition like and what does it look like as we sit here in the 20, at approaching the 20th anniversary for what you saw then might pretend for the future of federal IT? Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, uh, we should uh, front stage this with the, the um, notion that uh, the Clear and Cone Act and the Paperwork Reduction Act in 95, all, all these laws, there was a thing called the Paperwork Elimination Act. But the dynamic change was the movement to the dot-com era. And after the Y2K issues were out of the way, everybody knew that there was a shift in the use of IT from um, what essentially was workgroup implementations. They used to call client-server technology, and it was largely driven by Microsoft and Apple. And all of a sudden, the power of the internet was a different way to use IT and a different way to interact with people. I think that trend is still evolving. And uh, a lot of this relates to the shift from IT being bought for internal purposes to now the use of IT to support your customers. 
it's, I would bet, I don't have the numbers, but I bet it's a dominant amount of spending of IT is uh, how technology supports the interrelationships or those transactions between entities, whether it's business or government. So uh, it's interesting to look back at the, the findings and the purposes of the e-government act, because I don't think you'd change anything for today. Government still has trouble buying technology for modernization. It still tends to be within silos rather than across the government. And uh, I was pretty excited to hear uh, several times over the last few months, the current ego administrator, which is now called the federal CIO, uh, Claire, talk about the notion that we need to be more citizen centric and look across the government. I think one of the most dominant documents that's gonna help this movement that came out of OMB, which really hasn't been much in the press, was the, the request to agencies to relook their Paperwork Reduction Act reports, less from the standpoint of what's the burden on business, that's a, still there and it's in the law, but to take a new look at the, the paperwork burden on citizens and what the president has called the time tax. Um, there are so many enrollment uh, packages and programs and paper that you've got to submit, even though it's a PDF or electronic version of, you know, scan in and send your documents. That's paperwork in my mind. But I think the future model here, and I think that the path that this is going is very much like Amazon, where you have an account with the federal government and the federal government knows you. And there's a number of laws like in the banking, there's a know your customer law. But once you're verified and, and your account is with the government, you don't have to create a new account with every agency or with 3,000 programs across the government. Folks have been talking about that ideal for a long time. What makes you think that we're getting close or closer to achieving that, to making that a reality for folks, Mark? The, the benchmarks in industry, uh, whether you look at cost, or uh, the customer satisfaction generally are driving, driving government is maybe takes two or three years, maybe takes five to 10 years, but eventually government does catch up. Uh, now, the, the reality of how this works is people who are there in the CIO roles and the agencies work on what they know when they came into government. You get a lot of CIOs from industry and it takes them two to four years. By the time the next administration or the next version of an administration comes in four years later, they're bringing in the latest practices. Um, those are going to be around cybersecurity, fraud, uh, the user experience, or, and, and it's going to be not just the, the user interface of a website. It really is that experience in dealing with an organization that we're going to see coming in over the next few years. You referenced the word customer a couple of times already in this conversation. To what degree were people thinking about customers and, or thinking about citizens as customers when the eGov Act became law? And how have you seen that evolve over time? Well, um, those are two great questions. What were they thinking about? And let me say, has it evolved over time? Uh, so uh, very clearly, if you look at the, at the uh, reasons for the E-Government Act, the findings, they call it in these laws, or the purposes and the responsibilities of the e Administrator, it was this shift from 
what uh, we called in the in the Bush administration, and I think what people called similarly in the Hill, from an agency centered to citizen centered. And so uh, it really is this recognition uh, all over the eGov Act and and the eGov strategy, which was I think key in how the uh, certainly the Senate negotiated uh, with OMB on this. Um, we had four portfolios. We looked at citizens uh, groupings based on the transactions and the bulk of transactions between uh, government was actually with industry, not the citizens. I think that's been changing over time. The second level bulk of transactions was between the federal and state and local government. I don't think that's changed. And that's because a lot of benefits programs are delivered through state and local governments. And so the, the federal government gives a, a block grant or a uh, competitive grant to state and local government. And then they use that money to deliver services, much like we've seen in disaster response. So uh, understanding that the that process by which citizens get served and the groupings into these portfolios around where those transactions exist, uh, that's still fundamental. Now, how much progress have we made? That's the key question. Suzette Kent read the uh, opening language of the eGov Act on stage at ELC back in October. And I was sitting next to Dan Chenick when she was doing that. Dan was on the show not too long ago, told this story. And uh, Dan kind of leaned over to me and he said, we used to call that the preamble of the, the eGov Act. And what was striking to me about that was some of the technologies have changed. And Suzette referenced that last time she was on the show. But the concept, the, the broader language still applies 20 years later. And, you know, as far as what the goal of the federal government is regarding the use of information technology and a number of other things uh, there. And so that causes me to think, okay, if we are still operating under kind of the same mission, I guess, for IT in the government 20 years later, what does the next 20 years look like? Like, what, where do we try to take this? conceptually policy wise obviously the technology will change and the technology changes now faster than it ever has but can we figure that at least as far as the journey on which we see the federal government being that it will continue apace the way that it has for the last 20 years i think there are two elements of this one is where is the trend going and the other is what is the binding constraint that keeps the government from optimizing there's no question that the trend is is towards simplification of government and making it easier for citizens and, and businesses for that matter to get service or to do their reporting. Um, on the internal government side, if you think about the regulatory process, uh, better use of data to um, figure out where are the risks and focus those regulatory activities. And on the customer experience of citizen side, better use of data to simplify the burdens. And I think there's the key emerging issue is gonna be around fraud. Because as we're seeing from the reports from the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the easier agencies have made it for uh, government or uh, for citizens or businesses, um, then the higher amount of fraud we have from external actors that, um, masquerade as citizens or as businesses. 
So I think there's, there's a, the balance there, but I, I'm, I'm sure that that's going to get solved. The binding constraint on all of this is the appropriations process. And um, the, the key issue reformers like myself, when we were on the Hill, were working on is how do you deal with poor performing programs? If you could consolidate your approach to the citizens, because citizens' problems uh, evolve, but they don't need a different program at a different agency. They need to fix the programs and the programs should evolve. Uh, you know, the notion that we have 3,500 programs um, when you peel away the onion, you don't need that many programs. But you, what happens is when there's a poor performing program, constituencies go to the member of Congress. The member of Congress tries to get change. They can't get change. They create a new program. So figuring out how to solve this um, problem of poor performance without creating new programs and then busting down these silos between the agencies is what Congress has to do. One of the reasons I love talking to you, Mark, is because you usually answer my next question before I even answered it. My next question was going to be, you talked about the simplification of government, and that's uh, you first approached it from the citizen-facing aspect. My question was going to be about how that looks from the inside and what the obstacles to that are from the inside. And you kind of touched on that already, that it's a it's a Congress problem. Is there something that an agency can do inside itself or that a couple of agencies who cover the same kinds of things can do within themselves to at least maybe argue to Congress, hey, we're doing these things that are similar and we could simplify things for ourselves and for citizens by combining, combining them, eliminating one or whatever? Yeah, it's hard to eliminate programs, but it's easy to simplify that interface by making it look like they're integrated. Uh, I think this is where the, the Evidence Act comes into play and the role of the chief data officer. Um, the uh, fascinating thing to me about the way Congress created the Evidence Act was that they took some of the roles from the CIO and moved them over to the chief data officer. And while the chief data officer uh, now does things, it's really around information management and integration. So if you think about a typical agency that's got dozens of uh, siloed applications uh, for benefits, whether it's for businesses or for citizens, um, the, the businesses and the citizens don't need that burden of having to apply all those different times. And if you look at the new CDO role, they see all the problems in these redundant data collections. And they have now the authority to do what industry used to call master data management. Get hold of that data around your customers, around your policy issues, so that you can improve the delivery of services. That said, uh, you're dealing with people's livelihoods and jobs who've been operating in these silos, and it takes very strong leadership from the top to figure out how to manage that change. Mark Foreman, a great conversation as always. Thanks for coming on the show, my friend. Thank you, and happy Thanksgiving. You can read more about the eGov Act in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Salesforce is the connected platform that powers government health services. Salesforce helps public entities engage with their health constituents on a single intelligent platform to improve care outcomes from anywhere. 
Learn more at sfdc.co slash PSH. The Thrift Savings Plan is celebrating an anniversary. It's been two years since its full matching auto enrollment program for new federal employees began. Kim Weaver's Director of External Affairs, the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, I want to talk about the auto enrollment in a moment, but I'll start with something that doesn't sound like it occupied a lot of time in the board meeting this month, which is a good thing, I suppose. It looks like Converge and the issues that you've had with Converge are starting to settle into a point um, where the board members at least are comfortable with the progress. Am I characterizing that correctly, Kim? Welcome. We are seeing, as you saw from the information, calls are dropping. Um, They dropped 10% from September uh, to October. And October's call volume was half of August. So yes, we are seeing a drop in calls um, and we are seeing sort of a burn in, I guess, would be the way to describe it. Um, It is not to say that everything is, uh, you know, roses, but we are definitely making progress and seeing that that we're chipping away at, at the issues. Call volume in October being half of August numbers, do we have a sense of how that connects to what the numbers look like before the Converge transition, Kim? The numbers before, I don't have the exact numbers, but the numbers post-Converge um, have been roughly double the high point pre-Converge. So we were talking in August roughly 30, 34,000 calls. Um, And so this would be getting back to still a high number for us previously, but vis-a-vis what we were seeing, you know, it's in the right direction. All right. And I also note email inquiries up 13%, live chats jumped 29%. Those on the surface might not sound good, but it strikes me that that's encouraging that people are using those channels instead of feeling the need to get on the phone and talk to a human. Yes. And, and to the extent, I mean, it depends on when you are during your day, right? Maybe you have a quick question. You don't have time to get on the phone and a live chat with a real human gets you what you need. Um, or it's not an urgent inquiry and you can email and get back that response. Last month when we talked, the wait times were truncated to really, really close to zero. Is that still the case, Kim? It is. There are 20 seconds or less. All right. Um, I noted the uh, anniversary, the big two-year birthday party, and I know you guys at the TSP really do it right. So you probably we had do. a huge cake, a big sheet cake with the decorations yep. on it and a big number two candle. Um, two years uh, since auto enrollment started. What do the numbers look like for that? I imagine that is leading to a lot more people getting matched funds, and that's leading to a lot more money under management by the TSP broadly. The 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 full match at 5% makes sure that anyone auto-enrolled in the last two years who haven't opted out, obviously, are getting the full match. They are not leaving any free money on the table, which is exactly what we wanted. Um, and what it also means is that the percentage of uh, FERS employees receiving the full match has risen um, about 10% and is a little over 85%. So that means 85% of FERS participants are contributing at least 5% 
which means they get the 5% match from their employing agency or service. Um, and that's just wonderful. Another item that the board looked at this month is a chart, and I'm holding it up to the Zoom camera. I know that doesn't do the listener any good, but um, there's three strategic goals on here. Strategic goal A, improve participant retirement outcomes. Strategic goal B, provide top-tier defined contribution services to participants. Strategic goal C, function as a high-performing agency. What are those strategic goals pointing to and what exactly am I looking at here? And what is the, the goal of it, uh, of combining all of these strategic goals together more broadly for the TSP, Kim? So we redid our strategic plan last fiscal year. And these are three of the goals that you just read out are three goals, not three of. These are three goals. And as you can tell, two of them are participant focused, which is what you would expect the third is focused on the FRTIB as an agency, because if we don't succeed, then our participants are going to have a harder time succeeding. And what we're working toward are metrics that we believe um, demonstrate that that benefit. And you'll see that it's participation rate, it's contri- contribution rate, because quite frankly, um, contributing 5% or more and staying in the program, that is, and the earlier you do that because of the compounding, uh, the better off you are. And so those are the kinds of things that we really look at and measure and try and see if there are any things that we can do to help make sure that that's happening. Um, We actually have a social scientist on board and she looks at the data and she tries to come up with ways using um, sort of nudge philosophies to phrase things in ways that cause people to take behaviors that benefit themselves. And so there are any number of of, um, email campaigns that we've run to test messaging, to make sure that we're using messaging that resonates as opposed to messaging that people are like, well, that doesn't really mean anything to me. There are eight individual uh, items underneath this combination of three strategic goals, Kim, and we don't have time to walk through all eight of them, but I note on the far right column, there are seven of the eight that have green lights next to the statuses, and one has a yellow light, the BRS full match contribution rate. Um, That's the blended retirement system, I imagine. And uh, it strikes me that's relatively new. That's only been within the last couple of years, so you're still headed in that direction. So I imagine uh, the board's pretty pleased that uh, the other seven uh, individual items that you're headed toward appear to be going in the right direction. We are. And as you can see from the chart, again, not helpful, uh, a visual yeah. in, in an audio I'll hold mechanism. it up to the to this camera again. Kim. To the microphone? Yeah, yeah I'll hold it microphone. right up to the microphone. Um, so we set targets and thresholds, and so um, our target – for the BRS, 5% is 80. Our threshold is 70. That's why that's yellow. We've hit the 70, but we haven't quite gotten to the 80. And these um, targets and thresholds are measured or are reviewed and revised. um, And we will add as necessary additional metrics if we think that that helps us keep our eye on the ball. In all seriousness, with your permission, we'll post that chart at thedailyscooppodcast.com in today's show notes so people can see it. 
Absolutely, feel free. All right, you're also tracking some pieces of legislation on Capitol Hill that would uh, impact either the way that people participate now in the TSP or might potentially in the future. What are you looking at there, Kim? So there are three different bills um, that all are uh, retirement savings focused. It's Secure 2.0, RISA, and EARN. And I'm not going to trouble anybody with the full full uh, names. Oh, come on. Explain the acronyms, Kim. People no, love no, acronyms, no. don't they? No, no, no. Thank you. But what they're doing is making a variety of changes to 401k law. And um, what most notably is all three of them in different forms increase the required minimum distribution age from the current 72. Um, one of them moves it to 73 for one year, 74 the next year and 75 and keeps it. Others bounce it around. It's So we're watching that because obviously we need to make sure that we're ready to program it. Um, they did this a couple, Congress did this in 2019 and they gave us about two weeks to implement a change in the RMD, which was not helpful for us or any other plan administrator in America. So we tried to tell them that we need more than two weeks to completely revamp our programming. Oh, that silly Congress. I know. But then there are other provisions that apply to 401ks, but not us, like allowing an exception on the penalty for early distribution for individuals with terminal illnesses. And we want to make sure we're included in those and uh, other provisions to make sure that there's parity between the TSP and other 401ks. Excellent uh, insight as always, Kim. Thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Francis. You can find a link to that chart Kim described in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast returns tomorrow. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.